What up, what up, what up? Welcome back, everybody. Kyle here, joined by Everett. How you doing? Just chilling, buddy. What's going on with you? Uh, let's see. I mean, Brady just signed here in Tampa, so kind of big news right there. Uh, I think we already got the season tickets, so I don't, I don't think I've ever been to a Bucks game, but uh, I'd have to say I'm a Bucks fan now. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty easy to jump on that friggin' bandwagon, huh? Yeah. Well, it's it's crazy too because I've seen everyone's just roasting him right now. Like seriously. He, Oh yeah, like all the New England fans are saying, like, oh, he's oh, of like, course, he's all done. Like, he he's tarnishing his career, and and then obviously every everyone in the league, like, no one likes Brady or the Pats. So, I mean, I feel like I'm kind of one of the only ones in the situation right now. Obviously, growing up in New England, going to school, playing hockey there, and like being somewhat of a Pats fan, um, and then obviously living in Florida. Not too bad. I mean, I've always been a Brady fan, so I'm excited to see what happens. I'm I'm optimistic, and I think either way, it's you know the fact that he's playing at the age he is now. Um, I, I think people are going into it just like you know he's not going to win another championship, but I think just the fact that he's able to play and be competitive is pretty impressive. See, I well, I got two things for you. One, I want to talk about the New England haters, you know, chirping and beaking at him that, oh, he's nothing, he's useless, he's washed up, never going to win again. Here's the thing. If he would have stayed with the Pats, they'd oh, be yeah. blowing, his, yeah. blowing him up. Like, he'd be the he's, – he's the greatest quarterback there still ever the was. Goat. He's, he's, he's going to win another – he's going to win another championship. You know, still the GOAT. Like, they would be blowing him up. So, I think that's just trash. Uh, but way she goes, I'm not a huge football guy. I like watching, you know – big athletes on all stages and watching big games but not super close to following football but obviously i think yeah. i've heard of tom brady but number two here kyle uh what like what are season tickets going for at this point because if like i'm a sales guy if i was sitting in that room i would be so excited commission would be rolling in left and right but like are they are they jacking prices on you guys so now what's, what's that i think look they're like? jacked up now but the thing is we actually we actually bought them when it was like a very first rumor and obviously the Bucks have not been a good football team. So we got them when they were still, no one wanted them. And then um, I think it was a few days ago when all the rumors really started coming out. And I think then like the season ticket list, just like there's now all of a sudden a huge wait list for season tickets. So um, we hopped on early and just took a chance with, you know, maybe he doesn't end up coming and signing here, but I think it was worth the risk. I mean, they weren't terribly expensive. So worst worst case scenario, we just sold them to someone else. So Papa Conan's got it figured out, eh? Yeah, I think we're sitting pretty good right now. I think uh, we got tickets for Rays, Lightning, and Bucks. So um, like I said, I don't I don't think I've ever been to a Bucks game. I've been to like one Rays game, but just trying to get some sports fix if if it does come back hopefully with this whole coronavirus crap but yeah hopefully this gets cleaned up by then but uh where are you guys going to be sitting do you know i have no clue no clue i didn't okay. i didn't buy the tickets but. clearly you're really excited so that's exciting stuff. honestly just for brady i don't really know much about football and even in in new england when i was up there and they were winning all those championships i mean i i didn't really start watching until playoffs came around and then um he I'm Brady's just a machine in playoffs so how can you not like the guy but um the funniest thing is a bunch of my buddies that 
you know, diehard Pats fans go to every single game, Brady jerseys. When Brady left, these guys were writing, I mean, just essays on Twitter and Instagram, <laughs> just like cr- literally crying, like saying like they love the guy. Like you'd think Brady was like a family member to them. Like you'd literally wow. think Brady lived with them for the last <laughs> years. Crazy. Oh man, I don't know. I don't get into the whole fan thing. I'm not too big a fan of anything like that. But uh, yeah, I had a buddy down here. Wait, hey, it's tough to be a fan when you live in Michigan. What do you guys? I, I mean, <laughs> you're every single sport team there. I think has a losing record. Yeah, they're all pretty much trash right now. But like, I still have people that are ha- like heavy dedicated to the Lions. You know, people still watch the Wings and they talk about the Wings. I just don't. I don't follow sports like that. But. Back to what I was saying, I have a buddy here um, who's I, – I don't get it. He like – Tom Brady, if Tom Brady asked if he could take home his girlfriend, I think he'd probably say yes. That's how much a fan he is of Tom Brady. Um, but he was like heartbroken. He started posting all over social media, basically crying online. And then they dropped this new uh, – the, the Weekend album came out, and he's a huge Weekend <laughs> fan. And I'm like, man, you're just going to sit in your house and cry during this lockdown, huh, during this quarantine. He's like, yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty much it. But now, now he's posting. He's like, oh, I can't wait to see Tom Brady play for the Bucks." I'm like, so what, are you going to be a Pats fan and a Bucks fan now? Oh, you're such a loser. But I won't expose his name, so the yeah. way she goes. Anyways. Well, she, in positive news for Detroit sports, this is the Red Wings' longest non-losing streak of the year right now. <laughs> oh, man, that's so funny. <laughs> oh, did you write that joke yourself? No, someone posted online, but I figured oh, I'd share it with you. Yeah, good. Some, that was funny. Some positivity. I mean, I think the interesting thing there is, um, like, the turnaround with Stevie Y. All the fans of the Wings are like, oh, he's going to do it. And, like, you know, he's going to do it next year. The Wings are going to be so good. But no one really understands the the components that go into rebuilding a team and the turnaround. And you look at the roster today and you look at that room. It's like, who are these kids? We have kids right now. And this is going to rely on drafting people and having people come in and just be good coming off the AHL roster and, you know, rebuilding this team. It's going to be a three to five year process. I don't, people think this is going to turn around tomorrow. I'm like, what are you watching? So, well, even, even with, Going into this year, um, New Jersey, not expecting to be great. Obviously, they get uh, first overall pick, and they make a ton of moves, and people are like, oh, like, they did it. Like, they just, you know, avoided a, a, the rebuild. They just completely avoided a rebuild by signing Subban, having Hughes. Um, but, you know, you look at it now in um, March, you know, not so much. Yeah, where are they at? Where are they at? But, hey, that Blackwood kid's pretty sick, eh? Yeah, he's, I mean, he's obviously in a tough spot, but still putting up decent numbers, and he's pretty young, right? How old is yep. he? Yep, he's, uh, is this his second year out of the O? Okay. So, pretty young, pretty young. Yeah, so he's got, a, he's got a bright future ahead of him, but um, let's get into the interview. I mean, we had a pretty cool guest on, um, Steve McChicken, McKeekin. Um, yeah, it's the McChicken, number two at uh, McDonald's. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> he's, <laughs> Funny joke. he's had a pretty Funny crazy joke. career path, obviously now in the world of goalie coaching, had a just, I mean, the guys he's coached over the years, he's just got a huge list of goalies. Yep. 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 Goalies. That's, 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 that's who he coaches. That's yep. who he coaches. <laughs> I was thinking of the word there and, you know, goalies. 
it you would know, make sense. Yeah, goalies. This whole podcast is about goalies, so that would that, make sense. That's why I'm confused on how you're slipping. But anyways, maybe mix in another coffee and have a scoop of peanut butter or some protein. But I can't do – so, all right, another random story here. I love Dunkin' coffee. Trash. Like, no, no, Dunkin' is the only way. And also, Trash. I'm a little upset. A lot of the people we've interviewed, nobody's really been on that bandwagon. Like I said, we got to get some more, some more New Englanders on the pod. But, Trash. Basically, I can't go to Dunkin' right now, so I'm just relying on whatever well, home coffee we can. We they can no, up. they said you it, it can't be transferable by food for the restaurant business. But to me, like I'm still weary of a kid coughing into my food and then it's hot and then I eat it and then it's like, oh, now I'm sick. So I just don't leave that to chance. So I'm right there with you. Yeah, you, you're right. You're right. I could risk it go out and, and get a coffee but i mean do you see what's going on now like california do you hear about that yeah those poor people yeah who's next you think I, it's definitely i mean i don't think they're going to be the only state to do that so no rumor mill has it minnesota might shut down next week yeah that's something oh. you got to get barstool bets on that they have all kinds of crazy stuff you can bet on i'm sure they I'm, they probably already got one up for that actually we get it. You're from the East Coast. You like Duncan. You like Barstool. Like, just get over yourself. Relax. We get it. You live in Florida now. Just be weird. Right, okay? but what are you? You're saying like Michigan's a good state. It's a great state. It's a great state. You get all four seasons. You have beautiful lakes up north. You can go camping. You can go hiking. You go. You can go kayaking. You get the winters. You get pond hockey. You get skiing, snowmobiling, um, snowboarding, all your snow sports. What is there that we don't have? A, like a nice state yeah you don't have a nice city we don't uh, grand rapids beautiful small but nice <laughs> grand rapids don't um, even i think come on michigan oh because you went overall, there for you went there for two or three months and now you got a no, sour taste in your mouth get over yourself dude grand rapids is nothing special at all but let's let's be honest here michigan is a middle of the pack state no when it, when it comes to ranking the states we're talking right around 25 like just about as as average as I would say fifteen, but okay, okay. I'd say closer to fifteen, but okay. All right, we'll 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 give you that. We'll give you fifteen. Yeah, we'll we'll discuss that a different day. But back into the main topic. Back into what we're talking about here. The reason we're on between two posts, we interview people. Goalies, uh, goalies. Well, well, now I mean he was a goalie. Now he's a goalie coach, so it's different. Yeah, but, but yeah, he's a goalie. Okay, just burn that word in your head. I don't know how you forgot it. You've done this your whole life. You've played goal your whole life. But I wrote a that. sticky note for me. I'm putting it on my computer for every every pod we record. I'm just going to have the word goalies in case. You're, an, you're, a, you're a beauty, man. <laughs> um, so anyways, everybody, we had goalie coach Steve McKeekin on today. It was incredible. Uh, now, he played three years at Miami of Ohio. He was drafted by the Canucks seventh overall in a supplementary draft, which is a little bit different. We get into that. Um, he played in the IHL, played one game in the NHL. He's the founder of Future Pro Goalie Schools, which was founded in 1992. And the guys he's coached, the stories he's able to bring. And I think we were able to clear the air with him about a lot of the stuff he's done in the media prior and now going forward. You know, he's kind of changed his aspect on where he sees goaltending going and the way he wants to have his view on things. He wants to be a little bit more positive, bring positive vibes, you know, all that good vibes, energy stuff. He's bringing that to the world of goaltending. And the, my big takeaway from Keeks was, you know, he just wants to help grow 
not just goaltending, but goalie coaches. He wants to help develop those guys too and teach guys what they should be looking for, how they should view the game, because so much of this is mental. And I'm not talking about being happy, being sad, um, you know, the way you look at things. It's understanding top to bottom the goaltending game and, you know, how to coach it, how to teach it, because he has that teaching background, which we got into a little bit. So I don't, I don't know. I thought it was an awesome interview. I learned a lot. Um, I don't know about you, Kyle, because I know you're a little different there, but I, no, I, had a no, blast. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, really cool talking to a guy that just loves the game so much. Um, and obviously he had an incredible stories to tell us um, really cool things from his pro days. And then as a goalie coach, so a lot of fun and i th- i think the listeners will really like it sweet well we'll get into that right here welcome back to between two posts today we have an unreal guest on for you guys played three years at the university of miami drafted by the vancouver canucks and founder of future pro goalie school welcome to the podcast steve mckeegan well kyle you nailed my last name you passed the first test i thought it was mcchicken <laughs> Well, they, it was McChicken, but my first game in the NHL against New Jersey Devils, the announcer called me uh, McKitchen. So if you can't stand the heat, get out of the McKitchen. <laughs> That's too funny. That's a tough bounce as you're walking in for your first game, eh? At that point, when you get on the ice for your first game, nothing else matters. So I was I only heard about it later once I watched the video. As it was happening, I obviously wasn't hearing him. For sure, for sure. Is that the, is that the worst someone said it, McKitchen? Oh, no, they've massacred it many different ways. But, you know, I, I, I've developed a little thicker skin over time because I always uh, get into these things. Oh, you only played one game in the NHL or, you, you know, you're still wearing your Toronto Maple Leaf track suit and, you know, all this, that. I always try to keep it pretty level head. It's funny to me, but um, you just have to, with hockey, just take it with a grain of salt. Absolutely. Exactly. I mean, playing one game, that might be a chirp to some people, but how many games have they ever played, right? You haven't even got a sniff at NCAA, let alone making it to pro hockey. So they just need to, you know, pump the brakes there. I yeah, I look at it from a different point of view because I don't think a lot of people really understand um, all that happened, you know, and, you know, maybe that might just be a quick intro. It's like when I was playing in the minor leagues, Hockey News had ranked me one of the top prospects with Dominic Hasek, and I played in the NHL against the Devils. And then the very next game, so I made it to the NHL, and then the very next game I got checked from behind during a stoppage of play by Tony Twist in the, in the IHL. And unconscious 30 minutes, bilateral detached retinas, career over. Jesus. So for me, initially, when people would say, oh, you only played one game in the NHL, they made it sound like the reason I didn't have a, a full NHL career is because I sucked. And I'm sure there's a degree of that involved, and I likely would have just been a career backup. But I would have probably had seven, eight years in the NHL as a backup start or whatever. But I got checked from behind the day after, or sorry, the game after I played my first time in the NHL. So that's the reason why I'm a goalie coach now. I mean, it makes the most sense because you still have a lot to give back to the game. So why waste that talent and that understanding of how the position should be played, right? I just passing along a lot of the information I learned from influential people that helped me like Mitch Korn is probably the most famous goalie coach on the planet. Mm-hmm. But when I started future pro back in the day, there was nobody doing full-time goalie coaching for a career. It wasn't a thing. So like doing goalie clinics, private lessons, mentor training, um, there are people doing summer camps, but as far as actually somebody 
stopping playing hockey and then starting doing that full time, that, that industry didn't exist back then. So it was kind of the wild west and figuring out how to make all this stuff happen. That's crazy. Um, now before we get into everything, I just wanted to ask, because I know when you got drafted, it was a part of what they're calling like a supplemental draft. What was that about? Well, it brings up a kind of an interesting thing, meaning that I actually was drafted twice, which I'm a rare duck, I guess, for that. But what was happening is guys like Adam Oates and a bunch of free agents in college were late bloomers like myself and had slipped through the entry draft. And mm-hmm. then the NHL didn't want people getting these massive contracts. So they added the supplemental draft for college free agents. And that's when I got drafted on the Friday night to the second round to Vancouver. And then the next night in the entry draft, Buffalo Sabres had, had uh, called my name and um, they were told you couldn't draft him because he'd already been drafted. So I don't bring it up too much, but I'm a rare duck. I, I was drafted twice, so to speak. Yeah, that's a weird circumstance back then. But I know, you know, like you had explained, it's just because of where you're at with the entry. And then you compare it to the uh, college hockey players who would be a little bit older than that. Um, and I think today, and you look at today's game, it helps a lot of players where you don't have to worry about that as much because I think for goalies, they're developing later. Would you say that's true than players? Goalies have always developed later. And, you know, when I was scouting in the NHL, we always liked our, our goalies to be decided on based on their game experience. So, for instance, a kid coming out of major junior that's already played 200 games is maybe peaked developmentally and you have a better idea where they're going to be. And that might be at 20 years old, they've got 200 games in. Whereas a college kid could be 23, 24. And if they played a lot in college, they might only have 100, 110 games under their belt. So as a college goalie, you get a lot more rope. And we don't really think you're at the end of your development curve quite as easily because you've only played half the games as a kid, major, junior. So scouts, even to this day, and teams, player directors, always give college goalies a little bit longer rope to develop, which I think is great. That, however, uh, we can talk about later. Scholarships now are basically in the United States only for American kids. For sure. So, so I had a, a different kind of question because you brought up um, basically the supplementary draft and then obviously goaltenders developing later. So do you think it would make sense to maybe make some adjustments to the current NHL draft and have the players still go at 18, but then maybe make it a players only at 18 and then goalies at or push the age back to like 20 or something? I think all position players, whether it's forwards, goalies, whatever, would be better served if they delayed the draft to, you know, a year or two, because there's a huge difference between a kid being an adult and a a teenager in their development. And there's millions of stories in the NHL of of guys that come through later that weren't drafted like Belfour and like Curtis Joseph back in those days. And even to this day, there's lots of people that slip through there. So it will never happen because the union and people want money sooner than later. But effectively, the best thing you could do to be more accurate with your scouting and miss on fewer kids would be to draft them when they're one or two years older. You way more, no better what you're actually dealing with. Yeah, especially, I mean, there's only probably a, one or two guys who go in the same year they get drafted. So, um, you know, it would definitely make a lot more sense if they were to push it back in my mind. The other thing with the draft, too, is like a, a typical thing in the NHL. Teams have seven rounds if they haven't traded them away. And a lot of people get really wound up if they actually get drafted to the NHL thinking it's, you know, it's a sure thing now, but in reality, one out of seven people drafted in any given year 
for a team ever play in the NHL regularly. So just getting drafted, a lot of people think it means you made it and you're on your way. Yeah. That's exactly opposite. You're still at one seventh of a chance of legitimately making a career in the NHL. So, you know, at the end of the day, drafting is cool. Um, you, you can tell your grandkids you got drafted in the second round. Um, <laughs> people say, oh, yeah, it wasn't the real draft, so it doesn't count. But, hey, called my name. You gave me a paycheck, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll with it. Yeah. <laughs> so what was it like playing back in the IHL? That used to be the primary development league for the NHL. The American okay. League back then was all old guys that had sort of bypassed their careers. The IHL was the prime development league back then, and they were all primary affiliates for NHL teams. So I would have played against Dominic Hasek five, six times a year. Um, guys like Jimmy Waite, um, Ray Stinky LeBlanc, uh, he used to play. Um, <laughs> there, were, there was tons of great stories. And as great as the hockey was being one step out of the NHL, you saw some of the goofiest things. Like I, I recall one time a, a player scored a goal and I was backing up that night and he came to our bench and got down on all fours right in front of our bench and lifted his leg up like he was taking a leak on our bench. And immediately 18 people went out to start a full-on brawl. So the endless stories about goofy stuff like that in the IHL back then. Yeah, I was going to ask if it was, you know, kind of like the A or Coast is now in terms of, just the crazy things that go on, but it's, it sounds like you guys had a, your own share of that. Um, well, the thing was, like, the IHL would be comparable exactly to the American League right now, and yeah. it was way above the East Coast League where I actually had to play my first year. And the East Coast League, if, if, if I thought the IHL was wild back then, the East Coast League was insane. There's a guy named Chris McSorley who was Marty McSorley's brother. He bit a guy's nose completely no. off. In a fight. <laughs> the flesh, look it up. Look at Google's your friend. Chris McSorley bit the fleshy part of a guy's nose off in a fight. And no so, again, the East Coast League back then was the East Coast League and um, great memories, great experiences, but none of that stuff would fly today. No, I mean, the game's completely changed. You're like, you don't see any of that as much crazy stuff like you did back then. Um, that's wild to hear that a guy just took a bite out of someone's nose in a fight. Oh man, what uh, spit it out on the ice? It was just sitting right out there. Oh man, oh that's disgusting. <laughs> and uh, Keeks in the IHL, like, what was travel like for you guys back then? Well, I played for the Milwaukee Admirals, and um, some of the games would be flights like San Diego and um, Salt Lake City, stuff like that. Most of the other times were on the bus, and. That year, uh, a couple of years I was in Milwaukee, they were trying to get an NHL team. So I actually played in the Bradley Center in front of 18,000 fans every home game because they were trying to prove to the NHL they could support an NHL team. So it was bizarre. We'd be the only team in the IHL where you'd show up at the rink and upper bowl, lower bowl, completely filled. But most of the trips were on the bus and, um, you know, you got to figure out whether you want to be a hockey player or not riding those buses for eight hours. That's where you learn what the real grind of playing pro hockey is, right? Yeah, I don't think the average person understands what goes into it, but that's that's why we're here today. Yep. No, for sure. Now, jumping back into stuff more recent, um, you're obviously a goalie coach for the Toronto Maple Leafs in the National Hockey League, but I was taking a look at some of the goalies you had deal, dealt with there, excuse me, and uh, one of the names that obviously pops off the page is Eddie Belfort. What was what was it like getting to work with Eddie and kind of, you know, craft him a little bit when he was with the Leafs? I think I actually learned more from Eddie than I would have helped him. But the thing with Eddie is he's the most competitive athlete that I've ever come across. And I think there's some great teaching 
messages there and learning that you can have from him. Here's an example of what true competitiveness is for all your listeners. He came to start working with me in Strathroy and one day behind the track, he wanted to run and with a 15 year old kids. And I said, sure. I don't know why you'd want to do it. Cause you've already got a Stanley cup. You're going to the hall of fame. There's no reporters. There's no money, whatever. So it's a 45 <laughs> minute ranked run. He he's losing to this kid. He gets an ugly face, catches the kid at the end, comes over, pukes all over my shoes. And he looks at me, puke hanging from his mouth. This is the hall of famer. And he goes, that kid will never beat me. And I'll reach out to him every couple of weeks, check in, see how he's doing. And he's, he'll always ask me, what's that Michael McCarthy doing from Boston? I'm going to kick his ass again. <laughs> so he remembered the kid. So like that tells you he had to win when it didn't matter. He had to win when there was no money on the line. He had to win when he already accomplished a Stanley Cup. He just had to win. So you'll never find a competitive guy like that anymore. He, he was a one of a kind. That sounds wild. And it, when you look at that and the position and where he had been for him to be able to just go out there and just like, just want to compete. He wants to compete against anybody. I think that though, when you kind of talk to more pro goalies as you grow up um, or if you're exposed to it, you find out that it's that compete level. It's that drive that really truly sets guys apart from being average to being pro, you know? Um, but you brought up something with Ed that, you know, when you were with him, you might've learned more from him than you actually taught him. So how do you kind of handle going through that, getting on the ice with him? Is it mainly just going through kind of the standard practice, making sure his edges are tight, making sure his game's tight, or is it kind of, you guys go back and forth on what you want to develop and work on? Well, he, he's an interesting case. And I think a lot of the amateur goalie coaches that, you know, dream to coach in the NHL um, would have a tough time doing it at that level because, all NHL goalie coaches, I think 95, 98% have played pro hockey. So for me, it was no real off factor in working with Eddie because I played exactly the same type of career path up until the point where I got hurt. So him and I got along great because we both considered each other peers. Now, he came from Chicago where he was coached by Vladislav Trechiak, who wasn't a technical goalie coach. So he didn't ever get into which leg you get up with or how you VHR, VH or any of that stuff. So Eddie never had any of that stuff before he was just you know elbows and rear ends stopping pucks and so as his career was winding down with the Leafs and then onward to Florida and stuff he had back issues so we had to adjust his um, paddle height how he held the stick because you know he's getting lit up through the armpit holes so we make adjustments like that <laughs> we'd watch videos um, and the biggest thing with coaching pros is we're having incremental improvements. We're not doing 8 million goofy level drills that you see on Instagram. At the pro level, it's very simple. Follow the puck, control your rebounds, and repetitively practice simple one-level drills. There's never three, four-level goofy, this guy shoots, that guy shoots, do a barrel roll, you know, RVH on this post. You know, it's very simple up there. And he was a great student. And at the end of the day, coaching pros are awesome. And it was funny because in one day, I'd be working with Eddie Belfour, at the morning skate in Toronto and then I go back and do a goalie clinic in London, Ontario with a seven-year-old who didn't know how to hold a stick all in the same day. So I was so lucky to work with a Hall of Famer and a kid who didn't even know which pads went on which legs. So I've been very fortunate. That's awesome. So when you were in uh, Toronto there with, with Belfour, obviously he's um, very accomplished at that point nearing the end of his career. Was he receptive to trying new things or was he kind of stuck in, you know, I know what works for me and I'm going to play my game? No, he, the, the whole process for me getting the job with Toronto was because of Eddie. Like I started working with him before the Toronto thing happened and he'd already known and wanted me to coach him. 
and that's when I got the Toronto gig. So he, it was because he wanted me to coach him that he okay. would be receptive to what I was doing. And basically I said, Eddie, as long as I'm helping you, you know, we'll keep doing it. And it worked out well that way. So it was never a question of that. The, the one thing I will tell people that's very interesting about how he attributed uh, failure or something that happened wrong to him. So for instance, if you imagine a guy coming down the wing and shooting far side pad, flat on the ice and you know maybe he boots the rebound out in the kill zone and somebody makes him eat it for a goal i'd ask him about it after the game the next day and he'd say oh yeah the pad sucks you know the the vertical roll here by my shim needs to be hc 37 foam density 92 whatever the technological thing so he would write up on the front of the pad with marker and pen this this part of the pad sucks gotta fix this gotta fix that so he would outwardly attribute failure to the gear but then the next day in practice, he'd want to work on a very specific drill addressing that exact situation again. <laughs> so he technically would fix the drill, fix the problem that he had, but outwardly the gear sucked. And yeah. so his way of sort of protecting um, his ego or whatever was to, to have it be the, the gear's fault. But deep inside, he wasn't blaming it on the gear. He knew he'd done screwed up and we'd work on something to fix that exact thing so it didn't happen again. So he was a pleasure to work with in that regard. That's hilarious because that goes all the way back to 0506 where guys are still, I mean, it's the goalie's easy go-to. It's always the gear's fault, right? Like that's, that's it. <laughs> you get a lot, there's something that they call locus of control. And when you're dealing with an athlete, they have either external locus of control or internal locus of control. And the internal people understand that every event that happens to them, they could have done something about it. Mm -hmm. And then you have other people that no matter what happens, it's everybody else's fault or the equipment's fault, teammates screen, they went through five guys, whatever the excuse is. Yeah. And the best athletes are somewhere in the middle between those two, trending towards the intrinsic side where you're taking ownership for what happens to you and not blaming it on stuff you can't control because you can't fix what's broke if it's always somebody else's fault. And I, I think I can 100% agree to that because even when you're, like you mentioned athletes, but I think people in general when you can suck it up and you take responsibility for what's going on around you, that changes your outlook on life and it changes the way you act. And then you carry yourself forward because exactly. from an athlete standpoint or just a, you know, a normal person standpoint, being self-responsible and taking care of your actions completely makes the difference. But obviously at an athlete standpoint, you're escalating and everything's dialed up a notch in terms of serious. So when they take responsibility for how am I in the gym, you know, what did I do on the play? What did I do? What did the D do? But more importantly, was I doing what I needed to do? Are my skill set right? That kind of thing, I think, changes everything. So, It's very freeing when you do that because if, if you have to spend your whole life worrying about your success because of other people, then there's nothing you can do about your success because you're relying on other people. And obviously in a team game, you have to rely upon your defense. You have to rely upon back pressure and people helping out. But if you have a healthy attitude, say, yeah, I got scored on a two-on-one. It was a great shot, but maybe my depth was off. Maybe I was lined up in the body instead of the puck. So I think it's good advice for every young athlete. Take ownership for what you do. Don't beat yourself up, but be realistic with what happened and try to zero in and really zone in on what you can do to fix what the problem was. For sure. 100% agree. Now, you know, obviously you've coached a bunch of huge NHL guys, Ray Croft, Belfort, Talkfist, um, Clemenson, but outside i like i looked at your repertoire and all the kids that you have worked with goalies pro everybody what's one of the most memorable goalies that you've ever dealt with and coached i uh, i coached a kid named jalen day and he's probably eight nine ten years old and smiley kid never stopped smiling and 
um, he went to goalie school for like three or four years and then he didn't go the one year. And I asked his dad what happened. He was always, he ended up um, getting bone cancer. I'm like, Oh my God, the kid's like 11, 12. That's crazy. And Jesus. the next year he comes back to the camp with his leg gone oh, and wow. he had to take it off with the cancer surgery. And he, he was cleared up with cancer. He went through chemo and he had this screw in spike leg that they put onto a skate and he couldn't get up, couldn't move, but I'd look over at him. He laying on the ground. He got a big smile on his face. I'm like, holy crap, Jalen, way to work, buddy. And um, so we get him back up, and he's having fun again. And then later in the week, he didn't show up again. I called the, you know, the parents to find out what's going on. And the dad had uh, drove him home from the goalie school through you know, a rural area, and somebody blew a stop sign and had T-boned him, and, and Jalen was killed instantly. And so when I, I think about kids and what they're doing with hockey and big picture stuff and you know tough circumstances people have I can't get the kids smiling on my face because he got his butt kicked by cancer he battled he smiled he came back he became a decent goalie again he was having fun and then in the midst of that he had it all taken away with something that wasn't you know in his control so I think if there's a message for any goalie out there if you think you're having a tough day the coach isn't playing you the right amount. You're not getting seen. You're not getting scouted. Everybody's unfair to me. You have to step back and look at the big picture. The fact that you can still play this great game that we're going to love for a whole life is something you need to, to latch on to. And in a long-winded way, Jalen Day would be the goalie that would answer your question. Wow, that's an incredible that's story. Man. He just, just loved the game. It sounds like he you know, had such a positive outlook on life. And to be able to love hockey that much and like you said come back and with still just have a smile on his face that's I mean it shows you how precious every moment is and you know what you can't take for granted like you said it puts everything in perspective so like you know we're in a we're in an industry where in a, a time where people like to complain about how things are going and you know if in this current situation that actually I think is overwhelmingly positive, people are really wound up with what's going on right now, but it's positive because it makes you understand what's important. Your mm -hmm. family, your parents, your grandparents, your health and taking advantage, just being able to go to the rink and play hockey. You took that for granted. Now all of a sudden you can't do that. Nobody would have ever thought this could happen. So I think perspective is, is a great thing to gain from all this and just use this to really appreciate what you got. 100%. 100%. Now, uh, you know, looking at the future pro side of things here, Keeks, I know you've been running that since 92, but I read an interesting fact, which I hadn't known before, that you were actually a, you were a classroom teacher as this was kind of getting going, future pro was getting going for you. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I taught second grade and, you know, being a school teacher is a great help when you're coaching kids because it's, you know, it's not just like I stopped playing hockey. Now I'm a goalie coach because I saw some Instagram videos. I actually <laughs> university trained in teaching and relating to kids and relating to parents and managing, you know, different learning styles and different learning abilities. So it's, it was a huge attribute to be able to, you know, when my career got taken away, go right into being a school teacher the next September and Mr. McKeekin coaching little second graders in school. So it was a lot of fun teaching how to regroup and count and all that cool stuff. So I love teaching. Very cool. Now. So did hockey ever kind of play into maybe the way you approach teaching or vice versa Did teach those things you learned and how to, I guess, approach kids translate to on the ice? Well, the, the teaching clearly helps when you're coaching kids and understanding how to design drills and understanding biomechanics and kinesiology. So I think sometimes 
um, you know, being a school teacher has a dramatic effect in your coaching. Like a young goalie coach tends to try to overcoach. So a kid makes a mistake or something, they, they want to fix 15 different things at once, where somebody that's been classically trained as an educator understands that, you know, you've got to pick your battles. Let's zone in on a certain thing. Let's keep it fun. Let's keep it fruity. Let's really, you know, delve into certain things. And being a teacher is a huge thing. And that's why, like, my second in command, Jason Mintz-Bronson, is a school teacher. And I've always found that when you have somebody that coaches you that's a school teacher, they, they, they tend to be a good option for you because they understand uh, critical pedagogy. 100%. Because I, I don't do it a ton, but I helped out with uh, some 2011s and 12s in Troy, Michigan, goalie coaching. And, you know, everyone was kind of asking me like, oh, how'd you get into this? How do you do this? And then I just knew it through a friend and I, he knew I kind of did some privates with a couple kids. But when I approached it, it's more or less make it very simple. Like you're teaching them the fundamentals. But the one thing I wanted to focus is like, keep it fun for these kids. Because right. at this time they're starting to play full-time goalie, which I, I think at that point was still a little early. Um, but if they are going to do it, let's keep it fun. Let's keep it interesting and keep them engaged. But you do have to feed them the fundamentals. But I think you brought up an interesting point here, Keeks, is, you know, you can't take 15 different points that you want to fix on the kid and do it in one drill. And it's the same way you handled Belfort. You just pick one piece and you focus on it and you develop it. And then once it's 110% where you want it to be, you can move on to the next one. I think, like you said, a lot of young goalie coaches or guys trying to get into it and start off, you can't see six different issues and say, okay, we're going to fix them all on this next one. It's got to be a slow progression so that way they can get everything right. And it has to feel right as they go through the process. The timing like that is, is very important. And the other thing too is, so you know, I had the good fortune through all the work I've been doing for 30 years to, to develop uh, credibility. And one thing I always advise young goalie coaches on is it doesn't matter whether you've played in the NHL or whatever, you can be a great goalie coach. Like my, my, main influence was Mitch Corny played division three at Kent state. But the one thing he does, the one thing I do, and the one thing I preach to young goalie coaches is don't try to gain your credibility by using trendy buzzwords and trying to sound smart. And when you start using words like head trajectory, um, overuse the word tracking and, you know, lateral shift and head over the, like all these things I say to people, listen, Ed Belfour, um, and Martin bro. We got it recording. Um, so Kyle, uh, well, this is the one I wanted to ask because, uh, I know we already talked about it before here, Keeks, but you've been highly tied in and heavily tied in with Vaughn. Um, where'd the relationship stem from? Like, where's the beginning of this at? Well, when I was playing on my scholarship at Miami of Ohio, I had used Vaughn equipment and I used to actually use the old two-piecers before that when I was in minor hockey, you know, where the felt arm pads were separate. Oh, from the chest pad. oh yeah. Absolute <laughs> torture. So when the first arm pads came out, the Brown and Mike had made, you know, it changed my life because I could get through practice without crying. So I'd always used Vaughn and then drafted in the NHL out of Vancouver. I'd get in the free gear from the college team. And then I turned pro a year earlier to go to play for the Canucks and I needed to get some gear done up. So I reached out to Mike and before the Canucks were even able to get the contract done or pay me, he made a brand new set of beautiful black on legacies, black um, T 1000s. I think the gloves were back then. And, oh my God, it was zesty gear. And, and to that <laughs> point, I'd always said, you know what, Vaughn's the only thing for me. He could break the glove in in two minutes. You could puck handle like a wizard with the trapper. They, you know, they'd last you 
three or four months as a pro and then you have to get a new one or keep three or four in rotation but they didn't the gear wasn't built to last because as a pro it's built little cut down so you can break it in early but light you can move like grease lighting so i've always been loyal to vaughn and once i met mike and we shared a, a love of car collecting together i've got a ford gt and a whole big car collection like he does and um so we've got a lot in common except uh, i'm better looking <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, so when you um, were getting your gear, were you a big uh, gear guy back then with specs and design? I was less about the the look of it, more on the function of it. And my generation, being an old bugger like me, we were about almost negative thigh rises. So when we would get gear back then, because we had to soak stuff onto our gear to protect ourselves we got hit in different areas so we become very good at sewing with the curved needle and adding gear so i would immediately take my gear apart like the glove take out all the padding out of the back so it was basically like a you know winter glove on the back you ever got whacked you died the, the, the <laughs> glove literally weighed like a first baseman's glove there was nothing Jeez. to it and the pads i would take the top roll off take an inch or two off the thigh rises because back then we closed our five hole by pinching our knees in the butterfly and didn't rely upon um, the thigh rises covering now, which I wish I had. And we didn't have ProFly either because um, when um, Mike was the first guy to build the ProFly pads, before that we wore the pads tight and we didn't get a lot of external rotation in the hips. We couldn't cover the low net quite as well. So always very well aware of the gear, but I wish I was born in the generation where we had real gear like you guys got now. I just love this stuff. So yeah, it's, it's crazy now. I mean, obviously how far gear has come and you look at like i mean ev can tell you all about it i'm sure you've seen plenty of the new product too but it's, it's, i can't even believe how far it's come i think a lot of people though it can be a negative because a lot of people get very fixated back to that internal locus of control external locus of control a lot of people get very fixated like the gear is what's making it successful right or i can't close my five hole as well with this i can't slide with this type of pad or i can't can't do this with this rebound negative pad rebound like all that stuff where your brain's worried about your gear the biggest thing i can say is you got to get great stuff like vaughn get it set the way you want it and don't play around with it and I think what happens is if you get really tied up into the gear, you get in your own way. And you'll see lots of guys that trade change brands midstream or in the off season. Next year you can almost go to Las Vegas and bet that they're gonna suck because switching gear brands is very tough to do because you're thinking about it. And if you're thinking as a goalie, you're not stopping pucks. Yeah, you become too fixated on, oh, well, when I go down, this doesn't feel right, or my toe's not getting into it correctly, and my, you know, I just don't feel like I have the seal where it's just got to be constant. All right, same gear, I'm on the ice, run the drills, go through my skate, and I'm good to go. I feel good, I'm confident, mentally feel good, and that's just what helps you have that consistency. Um, exactly. And it makes sense, but I think you've brought up a funny point. So you basically played equipment manager for, you know, Steve McKeegan growing up. Yeah, you – because like all the way through minor hockey, you only had the minor hockey stuff, which was, was complete crap. And mm -hmm. like if, that old stuff I was telling you about, if you get corked on the elbow and you can't pick up the stick because your hand's dead, then yeah. you got to stop crying. And then that night go get some extra foam and sew it where you got hurt. So, you know, kids, like when I started the goalie school, we would drop two or three kids every day because they got shots that hurt them. So like 30 years ago when I started, kids at goalie school, doing all these drills, thousands of bucks a day, you get two or three kids every day dropping crying because they got a stinger. Yep. Nowadays, we're letting bombs go nonstop, age-appropriate bombs. And if I got one kid drop crying in a week, 
that's rare. So like kids today aren't having to go through the, the mental crap that we did where we're crying every practice because it hurts. Being a goalie now doesn't hurt like it used to. So I, I think, you know, if I could go in back in time and be born later, I would do it to have to get rid of all that suffering. <laughs> but then we wouldn't have the Steve McKeegan that we have today. I think a lot of people would like that better, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Especially my wife. <laughs> oh, man. Um, now, obviously, uh, Keeks, you know, we've, we've followed you on Instagram and everything like that. Um, but I think it was more so, what, two years ago that you started seeing the reverse VH a lot more. Um, and I know you have a pretty hard take on that. So tell us a little bit more about that. And where do you think that the reverse is headed? Do you think it's going to slowly phase back and it's not going to be utilized as much? First of all, I love the RVH and, um, contrary to what people would think, I absolutely love it. And I'm going to go back a little bit in history. When the paddle down first came in, Belfort would, you know, guy come down the wing and shoot one and he would try to stop a wing slapper by going down with the paddle down with the top of the crease. So when paddle down first came in, when the original butterfly first came in, there's always the tendency when something's new and valuable and important to overuse it without discernment, and not understanding where. So when I originated that hashtag RVH fail was not to stop the RVH, but to get to people to critically think about it. I mean, the net's literally six inches wide from the half boards over at the corner there, give mm -hmm. or take. And if you got an NHL goalie getting lit up over his shoulder because he's down in the RVH, like, like what are you gaining by being in it? Like, and I'll, I'll ask people, on tight centering passes or stuff. Why are you in the RVH so early? Well, in case you get centered over, I want to be able to get my knees down. I go, well, the guy behind the net's 18 feet away and you don't have time to predict that he's going to center it. You can't get your knee drive down. I said, on a breakaway, the guy's eight feet out in front of you and you're still up on your feet. So like, what, what, what about a breakaway is different than a guy in the corner who can't score? Why do you need to be down? So I love the RVH. I teach it. I just think with anything, and there's going to be something new that comes in 10 years, 20 years after I'm dead, and people just like lemmings use it because they see NHL guys doing it. But what I want <laughs> kids to do is to critically understand how can this help me and add it into your game. Of course, the RVH is awesome, should be in there, but know when to do it and when not to do it. And if I can ask a goalie, why are you in the RVH here and they don't have an answer, then you know they shouldn't be in it. So I think it should be used a ton in the right circumstances. And basically, I can summarize it by when a guy's within a stick length, you got to use it. And I've had a sort of epiphany. So I'm trying to be less negative now. And instead of being the old goalie grinch, I'm going to be happy-go-lucky Steve. Everything I say is positive, happy, and bonbon. So go crazy. Good. That's, that's, that's an awesome take on life. And it sounds like it's, it's more or less what everyone needs to understand. Um, and I think people that might not get it, like you said, when you ask a kid, hey, why are you, why are you in the reverse it when he's walking down from high off the blue line? And they don't have an answer. It's just because they're doing like what you said. They see everybody else doing it, so that must mean I have to do it. But in terms, it's just one of those things that it's it's good in small doses, right? You got to know when to use it. You got to understand the situation, and that's what's going to help take you from, you know, you're a level five kid, and then you're going up to six and seven. Once you st finally start to understand your technique and when to utilize it, that's just what makes you a little bit better. And I think a lot of it, too, is because of social media, if, if every little drill you see goalie coaches putting up there, some type of crease movement, and then they land on the post in the RVH, and that's all you see, kids get the mindset that, well, this is, this is what I should do. Yep. And there's something called proportional training. And that's simple as you need to train yourself based on the likelihood of what you're going to see. So in the game, you don't see three on O's all the time. So you shouldn't spend 50 minutes of a lesson working on three on O's. Mm -hmm. And 
on the RVHs, you don't need to use it as much as you would think. So yeah, use it every private lesson, every practice, you're going to use the RVH, you're going to work on it, but don't work on it for 50 minutes of a 60 minute lesson. Cause that's not what you need. You'd be better off working on precise rebound control or puck possession, puck handling is something that's going to keep more pucks in your net than the RVH. So I think that's the takeaway from that is know what you need to do and know how much you should be doing it and don't overdo it. If it's not going to help you in the same proportion. Yeah. So you, you brought up um, the social media thing. And I remember, uh, I think a few years ago, there was a video of someone on two chairs doing a split and juggling balls. So what's, what's been the dumbest or craziest training method you've seen? I don't think the podcast is long enough to go through some of that stuff. <laughs> and it's not just hockey. Like it's, you know, it could be anything on the internet. You just have to understand you have a very limited development window. And you know this, Kyle, because you're recently through hockey. So if you're not playing Division One or in the OHL by 17 or 18, the gig is up, effectively speaking, generally speaking. So if you take the age 18 and you subtract your age from it. So, for instance, say I have a 14-year-old athlete. Okay, you have four years of development to get to where you need to go or the gig is up. So during that four years, does it make sense to juggle <laughs> slow motion balls? Does it make sense to catch a 20 mile an hour tennis ball off a Velcro blocker or in that four years of development, does it make sense to work on actually what's going to make you a division one or major junior athlete, which is your crease movements, your recovery speed, your athleticism, the kicking, the living crap out of yourself off the ice. So that's why I get into the stuff about the goofiness. Yeah, it's cool. You can, you know, do this or that with a tennis ball and a Swiss ball and, you know, style your hair while you're making bake, whatever it is. It's not getting you where you need to be as a goalie. Is this actually helping me as much as something else could be helping me in this limited time I have? And that's my coaching mindset. I don't care about the goofy stuff. It's entertaining to me, but it's not helping you get to where you think. And then when you're retired playing beer league hockey, telling everybody how you could have made it, maybe less juggling and more backside recoveries and you would be uh, playing for Minnesota Duluth. <laughs> now that brings up an interesting question though because I, I just want to clarify when you you bring up the ages because i see a lot of kids at like 20 in the na that are committing to schools so what's your take there well certainly you have lots more development rope as a goaltender um in the united states okay okay and i see what you mean so there's a difference so if you're talking about a canadian kid there's been a paradigm shift full scholarships for canadian kids when i was playing 99% of the Division One rosters in the United States were populated by Canadian kids. But now with the NOL, yep. USHL, you look at Michigan State, Michigan, Boston, Bowling, you look at any Division One team, they're populated in inverse way now by 95% Americans. There's still Canadians that do it. But in, you know now, there, I think there's probably a total of 10 kids a year get full scholarships as Canadians in the entire country. So what I'm referring to with that, timeline with your your window of opportunities in canada yeah if you're not doing yeah. something as a goalie by 17 or 18 the gig truly is up um in in most cases because if you're not in the ohl that's really the only way you have to go now mm -hmm. um there's always going to be outliers and you know i often have parents that will say to me you know as a canadian they'll say i don't think my kid's going to play in the nhl or anything but if you just get a scholarship i'll be happy and i'm like well there was 10 goalies in canada that got a full scholarship last year and there were 700 playing in the major junior. So think of that. Yeah. Your best chance is to play major junior now, not, not the old college way. And division three is no bargain. 
because as you know, um, that's 30 grand a year US. So for Canadian kids, they have a different window of opportunity. American kids have a little bit more rope. And I think it's important for Canadians and Americans to understand the effective difference there. Oh, thank you. That, that completely makes sense. So um, now we kind of got into it earlier, but I wanted to ask, because you see goalies all the time between, you know, coaching your high-end goalies, um, the kids that are, you know, junior and D1 hopefuls compared to, you know, when you're going through summer camps and you're dealing with your eight U's, 10 U's, stuff like that. But Steve, what are you noticing now in young goalies in today's world um, that they have that kids from like 90s, 91s, 89 birth years didn't have? I think um, I've always loved how kids love to learn and, you know, you manage them the right way They're, They and give them perspective and give them understanding, discernment. Nothing's really changed. I think generally speaking across the board, a lot of kids nowadays, because of the messaging from the parents sometimes, and there's some underlying pressure there, they, they, they quit a lot easier if they're on a team where they don't get to play the right amount. And a lot of that's because they're hearing messages from mom and dad about how the coach is maybe screwing them over. And, you know, if you don't move teams, you're, it's going to affect your future. But at the end of the day, I think kids today are a little less willing to push through negative times. And if you watch one of my videos on my YouTube channel, I profiled Chuck Thuss, who played three years of college hockey without getting to play, mm-hmm. had to pay his own way, finally got a chance as a senior. So he literally didn't play one game for three years. And then as a senior, he got his foot in the door a little bit and was an All-American that year. So you'll never see that today because I think that mindset's changed with the kids. And I, you know, I, I try to tell parents, listen, assume like your kid's not going to make it and be surprised if they do. And you'll enjoy the process. You enjoy the car talks. You enjoy the time with your kid way better and understand that hockey's a hobby. Yeah. It's great. If you're going to make the college and play in the NHL, but approach it like this is just a lifelong sport. And the one video you may have seen, I, I said, treat it like ringette. When kids play ringette, the girls, when they turn 20, there's nothing after it. So when the parents are watching a ringette game, yeah, they get into it. It's exciting. But they're not thinking that the daughter missing a shift is going to affect whether they get the car or the house in Boca Raton. And I think that's what causes (laughs) a lot of the problems and things with hockey is there is stuff that could happen to you after you're 20. You could go to college. You could play pro hockey. You could make a bazillion dollars. That's what causes some of the lunacy. But I think if we could all, as parents, just pretend like it's over at 20 and the kid's going to be an adult and get on with his life. And then everybody can relax a little bit. I think that's the biggest thing I notice with kids today with the parents. No, it's- I think that's huge. Like, like no one brings that up enough and you go to local youth ranks and you just see the parents, everyone assumes the kid's going to the NHL. They're screaming at the refs, getting in arguments in the stands. And I completely agree. Like parents just need to take a step back and enjoy the game. It's, you know, it's meant to be a fun. With uh, your kid, you're spending time yeah. with your kid. And it's an experience for them too. And you don't want to give them the poor experience of watching you scream at the ref, seeing parents get kicked out of the rinks. It's not that serious. And at the end of the day, it sounds like, you know, the main point here, Keeks, is it's enjoy the moment. Enjoy what you have here in front of you. Enjoy what they're going through, watching them grow, the friendships they have, learning to deal with coaches and adversity, stuff like that. Don't, you're, you're kind of, People today are constantly, in the hockey world at least, worrying about that next step, like you said. They're worrying about where's college going to take me? Where am I going to play juniors? How am I going to get to that bazillion dollars and that, you know, sick mansion in the Boca Raton? Like, it's, it's about enjoying today and allowing them just to have a great experience, having that, giving them an activity to enjoy, you know? 
I explain to parents sometimes they'll ask me, and this is, this is funny, they'll be wanting to do a million private lessons or whatever. And, and they'll say, well, we'll skate seven-year-old Timmy and you tell me if you think he's got potential. And I always, I always say to parents in that case that the one thing you can determine if your kid's actually got a legitimate chance to play is if they've got this pathological push to kick the living crap out of themselves and you've never had to tell or suggest that your kid needs to work harder. Because mm -hmm. I got to the NHL with work ethic and the kids that I've coached that got to the NHL got the work ethic, I hate to use this word, organically. They were born with it. And talent, you could see a seven-year-old piece of crap. But if they got the right push in the, in the pathological work ethic built in, not coming from other people, they got a chance. But you could do a million lessons. You could do doing great butterfly. You could do everything awesome, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, and be God's gift and just look perfect. But without that extra drive that you've seen it because you've been around locker rooms at the pro and college level, you guys have seen and know what I'm talking about. Those guys that have that pathological push, like I described with Belfour, those are the guys that move on. So the parents need to stop worrying about, does your kid have potential? They got the same potential as everybody else, unless they've got that pathological push. Definitely. And that's just the difference maker. That's what sets them apart. In the world and in hockey, that's what it is. I feel it. Um, now I was, you know, creeping through the Instagram there a little bit there, Keeks, and I saw the old bony machine. Did you guys really use one of those? Yeah, I used it for probably 10, 12 years, and we've done some of the stupidest, sickest <laughs> things you've ever seen with it to the puck shooting machine. We'd set that thing up to 100, and uh, we get the goalies all lined up behind the net, and we'd get the Carlos, and we'd get this big watermelon and paint them up like Carlos put the hair on them, put the hat on them, set them on a roll of gray tape and put the goalies like three feet behind the mesh so they were safe. Yeah. And just detonate that thing. And we'd have watermelon hanging from the ceiling and all over the glass. The rink people just wanted to absolutely kill us. But <laughs> at hockey schools with kids, yeah, you're teaching them, you're doing this, but it's camp, it's a kid's thing. And I had kids still come up to me, they're adults, 30 years old. Hey, you guys still blow up the watermelon? They don't give a crap that we taught them about backstory recovery. Anything. They want to have fun and, and they talk about the watermelon and the goofy crap we did with the puck shooting machine more than they ever did uh, anything I ever taught them. It's the experience, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I doubt anyone comes up to you after 30 years and is like, oh, man, that T-push drill we did back then. <laughs> oh, it was just sweet how you taught the skate save. It was just awesome. I actually have people that come up to me now where their kids are in the camp. So I have second generation kids that attend the camps now. And there'll be you know, like a 35-year-old man in front of me going, do you remember when you coached me when, you were, when I was a kid? I go, yeah, sure. Of course. Oh yeah, for sure. We you had the pads on. You you got on the ice. We we stopped pucks, right? Oh yeah, eighteen hundred oh, yeah. goalies every summer. So one thousand eight hundred goalies every summer across North America. So my memory's slipping a little bit. <laughs> I'll tell you what. If I get a grandfather come up and say I went to the camp, now my grandson's in the camp. I'll be like, I'm done. I'm over. <laughs> is, is it time to retire at that point? Yeah, it's probably time now. If you ask some people. Too funny. Now, I was looking through some of the players you had worked with, and uh, I think the one incredible story no one, you know, not too many people know about because I think it was before social media, but was uh, Joe Rogers at uh, Notre Dame. I saw you had worked with him, right? Since he was a kid, and, and you want to talk about an uplifting story. The, the kid was born without a hand. He had a stump and a little fat butterball, probably 80% overweight. His parents <laughs> came up to me and they said, you know, will you work with young Joe? I'm like, sure. And 
you know, I put him on a little reporting thing where he had to record what he ate and I kicked his butt and I went to Mike and I said, Mike, we need to work on a glove for this kid so it doesn't come off his hand. He can catch the puck. So between Mike and Nuge, we got him hooked up with a glove and he battled, played junior hockey and I kicked the living crap out of that kid and he would never quit. And, you know, you fast forward, um, he played junior hockey, won a, a national title before that with Little Caesars, I think. And then he was able to get a full ride to Notre Dame. And at no point did he ever whine about not having a hand. And the, the biggest thing I can tell you about him, I started working, having him work at my hockey school. I made him supervise the regular dressing room, which involves tying up 20 kids' skates, little seven, eight-year-old Smurfs. Oh, Jesus. And by the end of the week, he'd had a little baby toe at surgery at one point had been um, attached to his hand to help with his tying up laces. But he tied up 30 pairs of skates, 20 pairs, whatever a day, all week long. Comes up to me at the end of the week, never complained. And that little tiny baby toe that was sewed on his hand was down to the bone and just oh. blood all over it. And that's character. That's people not blaming other people for how things are going. That's not somebody whining because they didn't get to play for three games in a row. Kid got a full scholarship to Notre Dame and he makes seven figures a year in Wall Street now. So great story. Yeah, it's, that's a, it's an amazing come up when you really look at that and what he's been through and the opportunity that, you know, he wasn't given, you know, some people could say he wasn't given the full fair shake, but look what he's done with it. Like you said, seven figures now. Um, he had a full ride to Notre Dame and an incredible university at that. And then he got to play hockey. Like, it's wild. Um, another yeah. person that was on their keeks was Peter Menino. Where did you uh, cross paths with him? He was playing, uh, I was honey baked or someplace back in the day and we were coaching his team where I would go to the old, um, I think it was Oak Park Arena or something like that, where we'd work with him all year in practice. And so like all the goalies that I've trained, I'd say, you know, I've had very limited effect on all these guys. I've crossed their path. I've coached them. They maybe went to four or five hockey schools in the summer. I've done 20 lessons with them. So I think every goalie that succeeds like Menino and won a national championship with Denver, I probably yep. have 1% or less impact with the kid, but loved his work ethic. And I could tell with him that he was going to be a good college goalie. I didn't know how, what, what he was going to do after college, but great family, great kid. And, you know, he's, he's a lot like the Tyler Parsons kid that I coached for um, four or five years, lived at my house um, and coached his current goalie coach, uh, Rob Liddell taught him how to be a goalie coach certified and through future pro. So it, it's kind of cool that you can see people that are now coming through that are now goalie coaches that were actually students. And I think that's how you sort of get that exponential growth with young goalies is teaching people how to coach other people. Yeah, 100%. Because now you've seen things come full circle and now they continue to give back, right? So they have no the question. same effect that you have. Because um, Mano's, he's a, he's a good friend of ours and he's at, he's coaching Des Moines, the Buccaneers out in the USHL. Yeah. Um, so I just, I thought that was really cool that you guys were able to meet at some point. Uh, the one guy that's just to interject that, that is a great story with respect to how people he is compared to what people think is James Reimer. And he, back then when all the Leafs were living at my house in the summer, um, while we were training, he's a guy that never swears. He, I think he was a Mexican Mennonite or something or Amish. And, um, he would get scored on. And he'd go, ah, oh, jeepers, creepers, and for the love of small farm animals or something, like he would never swear. And I, I'd say, James, like, what do you mean you're Mexican? Then? And I, what, what does that mean? Do you got a good deal on churned butter or what's going on here? But the nicest, sweetheart kid, my wife loved him. He'd always want to clean out the dishes and take care of the house and help out. And there's no more of a sweetheart than James Reimer. 
Yeah, I'd met him this uh, this past season at Carolina, and he always comes up, takes the time to say, hey, check out the new stuff. He's obviously on uh, a big Bauer guy, but, yeah, he's always super polite, comes by, you know, says what's up. We talk about what's going on in his life. And, yeah, he's uh, he's an incredible human being for sure. Good goalie too. I guess he's okay. He's last in the NHL for 10 years. I remember when we drafted him, I drafted him in Red Deer, and um, he's he came a long ways. I, I didn't think with our depth chart that he would have been able to accomplish what he did, but he proved a, a lot of people wrong. 100%. So, um, But looking at now today, Keeks, I've noticed you've kind of jumped on board with uh, a whole new production based on your your, your YouTube channel. Excuse me. Um, the quality and everything's great. What got you into that, and you know where are you taking that these days? Well, I, I started doing goalie videos back in 1992, yep. back in VHS, and people would have no idea what a VHS is, but <laughs> it's an old videotape. Um, so my first goalie instructional video I shot back, you know, close to 30 years ago. So I've been at this a long time. And nowadays, I just think it's a great way to get information across to a lot of people. And coming across Trav for Oilers and doing stuff with him, and he's got 60,000 subscribers, I said, you know what, I've got... I've got drones and I've got HD cameras and everything. Let's, let's get some content out and let's not make it, you know, completely technical. Let's learn more about people that are involved in the game, the big picture stuff, like we've been talking about today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on a scale of one to a hundred, I think my videos are likely about a 10. So I've got a lot of growth to do. And I just enjoy learning and getting better at editing, shooting, B-roll, all that neat stuff. So it's, it's a fun activity for me as I near retirement. Getting close, eh? <laughs> I, I, uh, getting old. I got grandkid now and uh, congratulations just, just keep doing the coaching because I love it it's nice to not have to do it for a living anymore and just do it because you love it so I'm very fortunate and I'm very blessed that's, that's you, unreal. also earlier you said you're into cars is there any that you're uh that are kind of on your wish list right now um you know I've I currently have a Ford 2006 Ford GT which is a lot of people think it oh a Mustang I'm like no it's a little different than that and Mike actually the blame for that because he had a beautiful white one with the blue stripes on it so I have a red one with white stripes and so a lot of the cars that I would add in my collection I would have seen similar ones that Mike Vaughn has and um, like Mike my I do the hockey business so I can play with cars cars have always been my first love and um, <laughs> I wanted to play in the NHL so I could get a Corvette not so I could play in the NHL and I've had 20 20 30 Corvettes over the last 10 years so I'm a Corvette guy and now for a GT guy all yeah, right. those are sick cars. It does stir up people when they see it coming down the road because it's pretty rare duck to see a Ford GT in person, and it's a, it's a beast. No computers, just old school analog car, and it's it's just like the movie Ford vs Ferrari. You better be holding on, baby. <laughs> yeah, that, that movie was sick. That's where the car came from. Is that, that that's the genesis of that car, basically? Really? Huh? Have you seen it? No, I have to. Dude, come on! on. Got to get out like a little bit. Rent it now with the coronavirus or something. You can watch yeah. a video tonight on pay-per-view. Yeah, now I'm on lockdown. I'll just open up the uh, the Apple TV. <laughs> um, you got you to gotta watch it. Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah, Ford it looks sick. Ferrari's butt. It looks sick. So, uh, Keeks, before we wrap up here, I just wanted to see what do you guys got planned for summer? Anything you want to plug? I'm just going to do the, I think, 30th summer of the summer camps. I do still do 30, a ton of private. 30 yeah. years. Still do a ton of private lessons. I still love working with young kids. I love working with adult goalies. And 
uh, every, any of you listeners that subscribe in the next week to Future Pro Goaltending on YouTube, I'm going to offer a free private lesson around the Ontario, Michigan region. So um, if anybody wants to do that, subscribe to Future Pro Goaltending on YouTube. We're dropping three videos a week until this current uh, coronavirus thing settles down. Keep it coming out. Keep the content going. That's awesome. Now, uh, before we let you go, what's the difference like between you and then Future Pro USA? Are they they're running separate, but they have camps in the U.S.? Yeah, I still uh, I still own Future Pro USA, and um, I still own Future Pro Canada. But I sold the rights to run camps in Michigan to Jeff Lurk, who's a sweetheart of a kid. And you want to talk about an inspirational story? Jeff is probably one of the best. Overcame height, asthma, everything else, and accomplished great things. And he was one of the favorite kids I coached as well. So Jeff's in charge of running entirely Michigan and the Ohio, Wisconsin area. Got a great goalie coach named Tanner Creel from UConn up running uh, Future Pro Chicago. And myself, I run Future Pro Florida. So if you want to come and do lessons down in Florida once this blows over or up in Ontario, we got you covered. Florida sounds much more my speed the way this winter's been. So I'll see you down there, eh, Keeks? Anytime. You guys are welcome. And really appreciate you guys uh, helping uh, grow the brand. And I'll tell you one thing. There's no better goalie equipment on the planet than Vaughn and you're going to have to watch my video Wednesday because I'm going to do something amazingly stupid with a massive <laughs> oversized Vaughn pad and you have to watch it involves a car and the pad that's how I'm going to leave it well we'll make sure it gets up and we'll uh, we'll tee that up with this so uh, Steve McKeegan thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this has been incredible learning about where goalie coaching was where it's going and where you know your backstory has come from so thank you again for the time and uh, good luck as we kind of go through what's what's going on in the world right now. And hopefully we'll have a great summer of goalie training. Don't you guys ever call me again. I'm sick of it. No, <laughs> it was a lot of fun guys. We'll talk to you later. Yeah, Thank you. Sure. Hey, yeah. Ev, maybe, maybe we get a uh, live interview down in Florida when he's down here for a camp. Uh, we'll we'll, we'll ask Mike. We also, I'll take you for ripping the four GT. You probably more oh. people want to see that than me coaching uh, down in Florida, but either way, I'm up for everything. <laughs> we'll talk to you guys later. Yeah, see ya. Going on. See ya. Just want to start off by saying thanks again to Steve McKeegan for taking the time to chat with us. Um, I think like the aspect he brought to the game and hearing about him working with Ed Belfort was pretty sweet. Oh, Talking yeah. about how, you know, it wasn't really he was coaching him. They were learning off of each other. And understanding Belfort's approach to the game was completely different. And I think he highlighted something that's, you know, it kept coming up throughout all the questions that we had asked him. And, you know, him chatting was just, it's about having – an unmatched work ethic. It's about being complete, like you're an animal. You have to be an animal. You have to want to go through the ditches. You want to get in the ditches and dig in order to make this work and to chase your dream. That's what I think is separating a lot of kids from being, you know, like a good goalie to being a very best, the one that has a long career, that kind of thing. No one makes it far in hockey by luck. I mean, I think you don't really realize that as a kid and and that's what he was really trying to pitch is that you know you're not going to just end up in the NHL or end up with a career in hockey you have to really work for it from a young age and the whole conversation he had of you know you only have so many years to really get to that point so you can't just spend them you know piddling around and just only having fun with it obviously um if if your end goal is to make it in hockey but also, I loved hearing him get fired up about some old school stories, too, and the minors and IHL and some NHL stories. Just crazy to think about the game back then, uh, a guy biting someone's nose off. That's just insane. The guy's nose is on the ice. <laughs> like, how do you, how, what do you say? Like, 
how do you approach that? I don't need, dude, I don't know. Like I, I don't know if you have the same feeling, but there's just this weird feeling in my body when I hear a guy's nose is bit off. Like I just like do like the, my arms just like, uh, like, you know, they get tingly. I mean, just close yeah. your eyes real, real quick for a second here, Kyle, and just imagine sinking your teeth into another oh, human's dude, nose just, like, just like, enough I to get... pull off the flesh and then spit it out under the ice and be done. <sighs> Man, it's just – yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad the game's changed, actually, then. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> you I don't know what I do. If, I mean, think about the people in the arena, too. Like, what do they do? I feel like it'd just be silent. Like everyone's going no. up for this fight. They're probably on their feet and then they see them bite the nose off and everyone's just like, wait, what just happened? No. See, I think if it's, a, if it's in front of 18,000 fans, people are going nuts. It's going to be a riot in the rink. Somebody's grabbing somebody and punching the person next to them. It's just going to start an all out brawl. Like, yeah, that's all right. See, yeah. But you see the, some dude's nose on the ice and you're just like, wait, all right, maybe we went too far. You don't think they were like, no. See, I think it, it might have got silent. It's like in those movie scenes where it gets really quiet and everyone's like silent and they don't know what they're going to do. And then that one guy who's shirtless stands up out of the crowd and starts screaming and waving his shirt around and then everybody goes absolutely nuts. That's what I would see happening. <laughs> what movies are you watching? <laughs> Weird ones. Yeah, my toes. I, don't, I don't know if I want to know the answer to that. But. but it was. I think what was cool too is we got to clear the air uh, about Steve McKeegan and his views on the reverse VH. Um you know, it's something that he's actually not against. It's just he wants to find a way to teach goalies to better implement it, knowing when it needs to be utilized, knowing exactly. when you're putting yourself in a worse place, in a worse position. So everything's got to be in tight. It's got to be off to the goal line. You can't be walking in from the blue line in the middle of the ice and you're trying to lean into the reverse. And I think he touched into something that I think is interesting is guys are putting stuff on Instagram. Excuse me, not guys, but goalie coaches are putting stuff on Instagram that looks good, that looks cool, that looks trendy. Yeah, exactly. So it's giving kids the wrong idea of what they actually need to be doing that might not have a goalie coach all the time because I know that can be costly. It's, a, you know, maybe some people aren't as fortunate, but it's giving them the wrong idea where, like, the high school kids I work with, I, I still think 90% of the game is played above the goal line. You might have 10 that gets close to the goal line and plays behind. So you do know how – you have to know how to address every situation – but with their game, a lot of the guys are walking in off the blue line on the wall. They're cutting in from the top of the circle or they're feeding it into the slot. And then you got to work on PK and stuff like that. But that's a lot of reading drives and stuff that I think kids don't get to see because how do you film that, right? So, I don't know. That's my little tangent. I, yeah. I just think he made a great point to where people are posting a lot of stuff that looks good on social media, but that's not what – 90% of your practice should be it shouldn't be going into the reverse and playing in and out of it you got to play the whole ice you got to play the whole game every drive every different play every situation you're going to see so what do you think yeah no I completely agree um going into I think it the whole social media thing kind of does hurt younger kids now um because there's there's a, a fine line between having fun and spending too much time on useless or almost harmful drills I'd say being efficient I mean yeah yeah, exactly so I think that's what he was trying to get his point across and obviously some people are going to take it the wrong way but he's been around long enough and he's obviously dealt with criticism before and I I think he's going to just continue to do what he does best and obviously it's been working um has runs one of the biggest goalie schools 
in in North America and has been doing it for 30 years. So um, 30 years. This is the 30th yeah. summer. Yeah, that's Wild. crazy, huh? <laughs> Wild. I can't even yeah. That's uh what's this? Yep. Eight eight years, eight yeah, math guy here. Eight years longer than I've even been alive. So crazy. Man, you had to figure out how old you were. Take that minus or subtract that yeah. from thirty, and then it took you that long to get to eight. Yeah. Well, Impressive. maybe we you can. You, I'm sure you can trim down the time there, so it seems like it was a quick, like, snap math oh, in my head. I think we'll leave this as is. This is gonna be one of those seconds. <laughs> hey, man, hey, don't add time. You're gonna add some time in there, and people are gonna we'll be like, it "Took you, took you thirty seconds to figure that out." <laughs> so you're a bright one. Um, but I think that was great, and I want to give everybody a shout out. Uh, be sure to follow Vaughn hockey or Vaughn custom sports, excuse me, on Instagram uh, to keep up to date with our latest podcast episode releases. Kyle, you got anything for the listeners? Everyone have a good week and stay safe. Practice social distancing. Stay clean. Wash your hands. Have fun. Wash your hands. Enjoy being inside and staying with your family. So signing off, this is Everett Bomarito and this is Kyle. Peace. (laughs) (laughs) See ya. (laughs)